Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Law Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. My name is Mary Vandenack, founder, CEO, and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held businesses, tax, trusts, and estates, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being for lawyers. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trollson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. My name is Mary Vandenack, founder, CEO, and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver Trulson LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held businesses, tax, trusts and estates, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being for lawyers. On today's episode, my guest is Michael Snaringer. Michael practices estate planning, estate administration, and wealth preservation at Porter Wright in the very warm Naples, Florida. We are going to talk about healthcare issues in estate planning today. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal and Carson Private Clients. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of Interactive Legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thank you, Mary. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today, and I'm excited to share my knowledge on planning with healthcare-related issues and estate planning. So, Michael, you and I have worked together on and off on various projects through the American Bar Association, Real Property Trust and Estate Association. Most recently, we've been working on some articles and things for probate and property, and I think you're currently an editor of that, correct? That is correct. I am the editor, articles editor, trust and estates section for our little probate and property magazine. So if you know any authors, Mary, or anybody listening out there wants to submit content, please, msneeringer at porterwright.com. I would love to hear from you. Take a look at your article and help you get you published. And I think you've been doing a great job getting great content for the magazine. But in the process of working on a magazine article, we just ended up sort of sharing a PowerPoint where you were giving a presentation on the healthcare issues in estate planning. And that has always been something I'm really passionate about. But with the pandemic hitting us a couple years back, it's become something I've become even more passionate about. And so asked you to talk a little bit on that issue. And you've spoken and written regularly about that, and I think you share my passion. So let's just start by talking about 
you know, what is a written directive regarding healthcare, and why is that important? Certainly, Mary. A written directive is especially important, not only pre-pandemic, but more so post-pandemic, because if we don't have what we desire down on paper for either our healthcare decisions or our end-of-life decisions, what we end up running into is uncertainty. And lawyers, clients, everybody hates uncertainty. Uncertainty with tax laws and especially, especially uncertainty with a person's wishes. If those wishes aren't down on paper, Mary, it's not me or you that makes the decision or the client in the waiting room. It can often be the state. The state might have protocols in place of what should happen to a person under a fact pattern scenario with a certain health issue, or if not the state, the doctor, the hospital, or even the attending nurse. And what we want to do is take that power away from them and give that power back to us. And then as we're going through whatever that process is, a little operation or something as bad as long-term hospital or health care, what we want to do is take back and take that decision and make that decision ourselves. And if we're not able to do it, put in the appropriate people that can not only make that decision, but then have a template for what our specific wishes are. And then in some cases, what our specific wishes are in specific, well-defined scenarios. And I think that like specific, well-defined scenario comment is so important because I'm sure you, like myself, have been in the numerous interesting situations where people sometimes have actually done directives of some sort. And I've been in situations where a hospital kicks the family out and says, hey, we're not actually following this or vice versa. Or I've had a directive to a family member that was appointed as an agent who is sitting there at the deathbed and not necessarily respecting that. And so in drafting these, we really have to talk to clients about the different scenarios that happen with respect to any time. And it's not necessarily an end-of-life decision. It can just be you're sick with COVID and what type of treatment do you want if you don't have capacity. And part of this is, I think what you said that was really important was, that as long as you're capable, that decision should be you. And then to the extent that it's not you, then who should be involved in that decision making? And I know, Michael, a lot of clients think, oh, these advanced directives are just forms. And having done a fair amount of deathbed work, there's nothing form about being at somebody's bed when they're really ill in a hospital. So how do you approach your discussions with clients on these issues? Well, I think first I take the temperature in the room because my philosophy, Mary, is that the client's the most important person in my life at that moment for that discussion. So if I read the room and maybe I'm just dealing with somebody that I can't get through to, then I might have to come back to that healthcare discussion. But if I get the right person and I'm able to engage that client, what I start off with first is we have, and I, I lay out the various options, 
questions and I say, you're going to be signing some healthcare decision-making documents. And I think the first thing I start with is who is the healthcare decision maker going to be? And it might be the spouse or it might be a child or it might be a relative, but we first narrow down that person. And then I ask the why, why is it that person? Why did you pick that child versus that child? Why did you pick this particular person because they're in the healthcare industry? And then we wade through maybe that decision-making tree as to why it's one person over the other. And then I think we get down to the hardest part for me, Mary, and hopefully it's a little easier for you, but for me, it's starting to focus the client then on specific scenarios, what the outcomes could be if it's just a generic form or what we're able to do if we can customize the form depending on what hat I have on because um, as I failed to mention Mary I'm not only licensed in Florida but I'm licensed in Wisconsin and I'm licensed in Ohio so I'm dealing with three different forms and three different approaches and three completely different states. So my discussion probably bow ties off with, hey, here are some decisions within some specific scenarios. What would you like to happen? And then it becomes incumbent upon me, the drafter and the attorney, to then sort of mold that plan into something that next I can discuss with the client as maybe a draft. And so I want to talk a little bit about, because I think people come in and just say, hey, I want to write to die will. And in you know each state, so you have a great point, we're licensed in several states, and so we are constantly having to take a look at if we do a directive for this state, how does that work in Texas, or how does that work in California or New York or one of the other states that we're licensed in. And that's, we always have to play that. And we, as you know, some states allow end-of-life sustaining orders, other states do not. But let's just start with what is the kind of basic list of documents and break these down for listeners in terms of what they should be thinking about. Certainly. So you have typically a health care surrogate, health care declaration, durable power of attorney for health care. Those or three documents are actually typically one document. And so what that document is doing is giving a person the ability to make your health care decisions. Maybe there are other provisions thrown there, but at a basic level, that's I am giving somebody the ability to make my decisions. The next document so wait, is can a HIPAA just... auto. Can I ask you a question before you go to the HIPAA authorization? Because I think you made a super important point that I'd like to clarify. So I still see a lot of drafters drafting a declaration separately, which is just a right to die will, right? That just says, hey, if I'm in a persistent vegetative state or terminal condition, then I don't want any uh, life-sustaining treatments. I don't want an extraordinary life support. I don't want... Uh, I want total relief from pain and I don't want any artificial nutrition or hydration. It's like this one page document and that's all it says. And I still see that getting drafted. But what I think I heard you say, which is my approach to this, is that there's also the power of attorney, which has different names in different states. 
that typically gets incorporated into the power of attorney. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so we do a multi-level document that's called our healthcare declaration in Florida. And we have a durable of a power of attorney for healthcare, a healthcare surrogate form, and then a living will into one form. And based on our approach with the client, what we typically do then is determine whether is this somebody that is a standard living will person, meaning the type of client that just says, if I'm pronounced dead by two disinterested physicians and those physicians have stated I have zero medical probability of coming back to life, then I want a whole host of quote-unquote life-sustaining measures removed. And then we define what that means. That's the quote the approach, Mary, for some clients, but for other clients, depending on temperament and their approach to the healthcare documents, or if they're of a specific religion, we cannot do that. And so we might break the living will out of that particular document and instead have a healthcare declaration that might just totally only discuss, you know, healthcare surrogate, durable power of attorney for healthcare, and then have a separate living will document that is specifically tailored to maybe a client that wants to be kept on a ventilator, but doesn't want life-sustaining measures to mean, you know, artificial feeding tube, or maybe it's a religious-based approach where the particular client must be kept alive until they can't anymore versus a client that um, maybe they're a specific religion. So there's a few things that have to be checked. Maybe they're in Judaism. Maybe it's the rabbi needs to make the decision. But we can get very nuanced and technical, or we can be very broad. So to summarize, I think having a separate living will document in my practice is a very technical and nuanced. But if I'm going to go with just a generic client that doesn't want to hear it, that just wants to, quote, sign a healthcare document, then they're going to get our generic healthcare declaration with the caveat of the two disinterested doctors, zero medical probability, don't keep me alive using life-sustaining measures. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors, Carson Private Client. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. 
Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, let's continue our episode. So I want to just follow up on a question regarding the two disinterested physicians. Because the way medicine has evolved is once upon a time, your primary care physician would round at the hospital and you would see your primary care physician in the hospital. Now it's hospitalists. And I live in a city where we have our major hospitals are pretty much all teaching institutions. And so I had a scenario a few years back where the rounding physician who had never met my client before came in and said, oh, he's dead, and then handed the little chart. And I'm being a little facetious in saying this story, right, but just to make an illustration. So um, in fairness, I'm making this up, but it's kind of sort of happened. And so the attending physician then has a resident following him around, hands the little sheet to says, okay, client's dead, sign off. So now I have two disinterested physicians. And in this case, I'm just going to tell you that I was going to file an injunction and, you know, the hospital agreed, said, we'll bring in an expert. And that particular person is still walking around the face of this earth. So that really taught me the need to reconsider what two disinterested physician means in my documents. So I've gone to, and just kind of asking if you have any different or additional thoughts on this, where what I do is now have the second physician be chosen by the agent so that I don't run into hospitalists and resident signing off. And this allows the agent to then say, call in the primary care doctor or an expert which also facilitates the family being more comfortable with the decision as opposed to two physicians that they don't know making the call. So what are your thoughts on that type of approach or what type of approach do you use? Yeah, so I typically go with two physicians, one a treating physician of the patient for whatever that specialty is in the discipline that the person is there for to be treated. So for example, if we're doing a heart surgery, I want the cardiologist of my client's choosing to be the person that is in on that two physician decision, one treating and then one other cardiologist that comes in and says, we can't save the heart. That would be my typical scenario. Um, Where I've done it differently is in cases where there's a religious-based approach where um, a certain doctor must be approved by the medical society for the type of religion that I have involved. So, for example, if I have a particular client who's very um, interested in the Jewish faith, and they're not just reform or conservative, they're somebody that's orthodox, I'm going to have to have somebody that's been approved to be in on the decision-making, in addition to, in certain cases, a rabbi that is familiar with the patient prior to the decision being made. So um, I like your approach, Mary, but again, in some cases, it's just not for everybody because some of our clients, as you know, will come in like uh, 
forgive the phrase, a bull in a fine um, table store and just mess up and run thing everything over. And they don't want to hear our advice. They just need, Michael, give me the health care document. So you do make another great point about how religious beliefs really affect powers of attorney. And I think that's a great point in the thought process that a lot of people think, oh, it's just the form. So that bold clients say, just give me your form. Okay, well, I'm at least going to write you a letter explaining. But there are a lot of people, and I will say particularly during the pandemic, we did a lot more unique drafting of these documents than I've done in my entire career. And that religious issues have been one of those. And the other has been more like what I would call situational decisions. So those who are like, you know, if there's early on in the pandemic, if somebody else who's younger than me needs a ventilator, then, you know, don't give me a ventilator and those type of things. Do you remember when we had the estate tax going to be repealed and people said, well, unplug me if there's a chance I'm going to die before the while the estate tax doesn't exist. That was a really huge ethical issue for me, and I wouldn't draft them. But the thing is, I think there's a lot of information out there on the bioethics related to powers of attorney. It's extremely important. And I know that, you know, I live in an area where Catholicism is really strong, and there's a very different perspective for Catholics about life than some others. And there's so, like the Catholics have some great bioethical sites, but do you have any favorite places if somebody's trying to look at, you know, the Judaism that you mentioned or a particularly, do you have a site that you love where they can go kind of see what the guiding principles of their faith is? Um, I don't have a particular website. I, I hate to say this, but typically I will just talk to the client and say, I would start with first with talking to the folks that you worship with. And I just keep it very vague, you know, whether you're going to one Christian denomination, you're Jewish, or maybe you're um, Buddhist or something else. I would first start with the person there that um, is really involved in your life, whether that's the priest or somebody, like in my case, I'm Catholic, so I don't start oftentimes on the internet going to sort of the Vatican and figuring out, you know, what do they say? What I'll do is I'll talk to my priest and see if maybe there's something that the bishop, so highest level in the Catholic church for my region, is there something that the bishop has put out that I can readily find on my diocesan website that will be helpful to me? Whether I'm the attorney working with the client, um, I might look that up for the client and start there. Um, Likewise, if I'm in New York City and I'm a Jewish lawyer and my client is a specific sect of Judaism, I might then ask that client, um, well, who's your rabbi? And does your rabbi have a resource that we can look at together? I find, Mary, that if I just send them on the internet or I send myself on the internet, sometimes I go down a rabbit hole, which during this pandemic, of course, there was a lot of that. So I would just tell the client, hey, before you jump on Google, let's take a step back. Who is the person in charge? And then who's in charge of that person? And again, I use my example. I talked to my priest. Let's get the bishop's name. We're in the Diocese of Venice here in Naples, Florida. Let's see if our bishop has 
put anything out on the website that would be helpful to parishioners. And that's a really great point because there's a lot of fake stuff out there on the internet. I do happen to know that Catholicism does actually have a great bioethics website, but you're right. If they just Google that, they might find the fake website, right? So we don't know. (laughs) Well, let's, let's talk just briefly. So the standard provisions when somebody gets a template, right to die will or declaration, right? It's going to say, hey, I do not want extraordinary life support measures. I don't want artificial nutrition and hydration. And I want total relief from pain when in a terminal condition. As you and I both know, there's been cases about, and I remember the one that jarred me early on, which was a lady went in for hip surgery and she coded in recovery and they, you know, did not resuscitate her. And I was personally thinking, what? Like it was just hip surgery. But then I was humbled by clients at my table who some would say, you know, if my heart stopped, my heart stopped. And others who are, if I'm just in having hip surgery, then yeah, I should be resuscitated, which tells us the importance about one, really defining things in the documents and two, talking to those that you're putting in charge. But what else should be considered? I mean, each of those decisions should actually be discussed and considered. And then what else, Michael? So as we kind of talked about a little bit, first we have to consider if we're very religious, we need to be in line with what our religion states with those couple of little items in the living will type scenario. The next thing we want to kind of define and think about is, okay, whether we're religious or not, like how kind of deep within the terminology can we get? Because when we talk about persistent vegetative state and terminal condition, for example, well, what do those words mean under state law? And does my client understand like what's a terminal condition? And again, we're not, we can't do this with every client, but for the client that this works with, we really need to talk about, well, what's a terminal condition or what does artificial nutrition look like? What does hydration look like? Is that just water? Do I get Gatorade? Do I get Powerade? You know, do I get something else? You know, what does that mean? And then what's a persistent vegetative state? Well, if we break that down, well, what does state law say about that? The hospital do uh, that I'm going to, do they have any guidance on how they treat a persistent vegetative state? And then if I know my treating physician, my religion, and my hospital, does what I'm going to draft into that document mix with religion, hospital, personal preference, and even state law? Because, for example, Mary, I'm looking at something now that defines terminal condition and stage condition and persistent vegetative state. And I'm looking at our common form that I use here in my practice. And my thought process is, gee, this is great, and it breaks down the definitions for most clients. But I'm wondering, number one, if I'm going to a hospital affiliated with a religion, is it going to be problematic depending on how things are defined? Or if I'm working with a client that um, really doesn't care, do I need to alert them to the fact that, well, you're telling me it doesn't matter, but 
would you like to know that our farm defines a persistent vegetative state as a permanent and irreversible condition of unconsciousness in which there is the absence of voluntary action or cognitive behavior of any kind and an inability to communicate or interact purposefully with the environment? Do you think that goes far enough, client? Um, because what I'm telling you is that if you're in a persistent vegetative state, the document that I typically draft, it takes you off. If two doctors have pronounced you unable to have any medical probability of coming back to life, but are, is there something within that definition that concerns you, client? And if there is, am I able to rewrite that definition to conform to the client's wishes that then confirms with state law and what the hospital might allow me to do or the doctor might allow me to do. And let me break it down one more nanosecond here, Mary. I can do that maybe under Florida law, but there's a difference in the states as we talked about. For example, if I'm going to Ohio and I'm an Ohio person, Ohio has forms that were done in conjunction with the Ohio Bar Association and the Ohio Medical Society. So there, I don't have as much wiggle room. I have a series of boxes to check, and I may have some um, customization that I can put in the document. But when it comes to taking apart a word and customizing it for my document, that might be a little more difficult in that state as opposed to being in Florida. And I know that's a long way to get to the answer to your question, but I think it's just extremely important for attorneys to know that it's just not putting together a document and sending it. I think that's probably the most important point that we can make, that there's significant discussions. Well, Michael, I'm at the end of our time, so I just want to ask if you have any last thoughts that you want to add. Yeah, certainly, Mary. The one thing that, um, just to piggyback to, is we have the healthcare decision document, and then we have the document that gives the healthcare decision maker access to the healthcare materials, and that's the HIPAA authorization form. And then in my state, Mary, where I predominantly practice in Florida, we almost have to take it a step further because we have a healthcare decision maker. We have a person that can get access to health care decisions, which might not be our decision maker, but has access. And then I can also nominate a standby guardian to make the decisions of my person, meaning my health care decisions. So in one state, Florida, I can have somebody with access to my health care information that doesn't make my health care decisions, but then that person that makes my health care decisions then might not um, be the person that is the guardian of my person if a full guardianship is necessary. So I think it's just very important for those listening to realize the various decisions, outcomes, things we can break down and change versus things that we cannot break down at all and make any changes to. So, Michael, I really appreciate your knowledge and experience in taking the time to participate in this call today. And I just, because I'm out of time in a footnote, two other important points that you've made to me that I really appreciate is that you really do the health care powers of attorney. Your directives in this area are part of your estate plan, and it's super important to have a collaboration among the various professionals involved, particularly if you're dealing 
with some kind of life-threatening illness. Well, thanks again for being on to the podcast today, Michael. I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal and Carson Wealth. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.